You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, as we turn now to your word from Paul in 1 Corinthians, help us to uh, understand this difficult message. Sanctify my words that they might not be mine, but yours indeed. Prepare our hearts and minds to receive that word. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. We've been in 1 Corinthians for several weeks. I don't have time to give a recap. We skipped last week, uh, but I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees here. This is why I've included the end of chapter 4 in the reading and not just uh, all of chapter 5, because at the end of chapter 4, it seems that there are some arrogant people in the congregation there in Corinth boasting that Paul would not return to them as he said he would to hold them accountable to the apostolic message of Christ crucified that he's been emphasizing the uh, previous three and a half chapters, uh, and also potentially return to discipline them. So this is why we have there, if you have your bulletin, I think it would be good today to have your bulletin out or your Bible on your lap. Um, I've included the indents so you can see the paragraphs because we're going to kind of go paragraph by paragraph. So this is why I've included verse 21 at the end of chapter 4 because Paul is moving into this section on church discipline for a couple of chapters. So in verse 21 he says to them, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? At my house, we've read this book and try to apply this book maybe you've seen for parenting called Parenting with Love and Logic. It's been around for about 30-something years, I think. And the point of it is to, is to help teach children responsibility through choices and consequences. And you have to give them choices that you can live with. Some are appropriate choices, some are less appropriate choices, and they will feel the consequences. For example, Would you like to sit at the table and use your good manners, or would you like to sit on the floor in the garage and eat dinner if you want to eat like an animal? The choice is up to you. Um, And this is what he's doing in verse 21. He's saying, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, which is code for discipline, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Um, So he's saying he knows there are problems in the congregation, that he's about to address, and he'd rather that they deal with these problems, the congregation deal with these problems before he arrives, because if they don't, he'll be forced to to hold them accountable, to be the disciplinarian. He'd rather that they take care of it so that he can come to them uh, in a spirit of gentleness, seeing that they've dealt with a problem. So we move from this into chapter 4, which has those four sections there uh, in your bulletin or in your Bible translation. So beginning with verses 1 and 2, there's been a report to Paul about sexual immorality among them. Just as Chloe's people were referred to earlier in the book of reporting about the quarreling, it's probably the same people reporting that there's also sexual immorality among them, uh, which is the, the emphasis, is the among them, not the sexual immorality. That's not the main point of this passage. Uh, but, the, but the word that's translated into sexual immorality means any uh, sexual activity outside of an appropriate marriage between a man and a woman. Now, I say appropriate because this may have been a marriage between a man and a woman, uh, but it's probably a man to his stepmother 
The details aren't clear about the whole situation, but that's probably the clearest understanding we'll get, that he's had some sort of cohabitating relationship, maybe even marriage, uh, with his stepmother. Is the father dead, divorced? We don't know. That's all we know. Either way, this violates law given in Deuteronomy, and not only that, it's so immoral that the pagans around them wouldn't even tolerate this sort of behavior in the surrounding culture. But as I said, the main problem here is that the congregation is tolerating this sin among them. Paul calls the congregation arrogant for this. They seem to be abusing their understanding of their freedom in Jesus Christ and allowing an anything-goes sort of tolerance in their community. There was a saying in the Corinthian church, and we know this because Paul cites it several times later in chapters 6 and uh, 10, Uh, that all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. And this mentality is always a risk for gospel churches. Uh, This is the reason why uh, Paul, talking about grace and justification, then turns in Romans chapter 6, the very beginning, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? This mentality, you've probably heard this word around here, is called antinomianism, uh, which is, you can, don't worry about that, is fancy for against the lawism. Uh, and this is a, a position that because of go, uh, the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ, that moral law is no longer an obligation for the follower of Jesus, since faith in Jesus Christ alone is necessary for salvation. And this by the way, is an underst- I understand where this is coming from. This is an understandable attempt to avoid what's called works righteousness, the idea that we need to earn God's favor by our behavior. Usually people who are slipping towards this against the lawism are trying to avoid some form of works righteousness, and yet it's misguided. I mean, look at what Paul said there in Romans chapter 6. Uh, because Christianity then becomes all grace with no law. It's the sort of idea that all you need is love. This sort of brand of Christianity that sweeps God's wrath under the rug and begins to love and tolerate the things that God actually hates. To this, Paul says to them, you ought to mourn for your congregation. You ought not to be boastful and arrogant, But because you're tolerating uh, this sort of behavior, you ought to mourn for your congregation because it is dying in God's sight. The tolerance is destroying them as a community. And the only option they have for survival is to remove the man who did this thing among them. And I say this, they ought to remove him if, if he refuses to repent and carries on this notorious relationship. Now, the next paragraph, we're going to go through paragraph through paragraph, and then I'll kind of tie it up with a neat bow. Don't worry, there's a real positive ending. Stick with me. I think this is is interesting to kind of walk through it, no matter what you think, you know? So here, let's look at the next paragraph. This is tough theologically, uh, and I don't want to get bogged down too much here, but in verses 3 through 5, Paul is basically citing what Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 18. He says, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that uh, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So Paul is following Jesus' instructions by going to this brother in the Corinthian congregation, but through, from a distance, because he has to, through a letter. And Paul is also instructing the congregation to follow this teaching of confronting this man who's obviously guilty of the sin. By doing this, Paul is saying that he's both spiritually present, as if spiritually present by way of the Holy Spirit, and also that Jesus Christ is present with them by his power when they gather in his name, just as he promised in Matthew chapter 18. Also, if the man refuses to listen to the challenge, he is to be to them, as Jesus said, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Or as Paul explains it, they are to hand him over to Satan, which means that they are to ask him to leave the church. Now that might sound harsh to you, um, but uh, it's sort of just the, the language that they're using to say, if they're refusing to repent and change their ways from this sin, to ask them to leave to be as if a Gentile and a tax collector, to hand him over to Satan, who is the ruler of this world outside of the domain of the kingdom of God. Um, it, but even though it might sound harsh, listen, pay attention to the language. To do this in order that this man's uh, sinful inclinations might be destroyed and so that he might be saved In other words, the goal is repentance and reconciliation both with God and with the church. And another goal here is to protect the church from the sin spreading like an illness. Well, then we move on to verses 6 through 8, which is also a bit tricky. He's referencing the Passover in uh, Exodus. when Israel Remember when Israel had to put the blood on their doorposts so that the angel of death... uh, Uh, would pass over them, prevent the angel of death from taking their firstborn children. And Egypt did not do this, so they experienced the wrath of God. And as a result, the Pharaoh in Egypt allowed Israel to finally leave, Uh, but they had to do so quickly, with haste. Um, And here's where the bread comes in. Now to make bread, if you have any experience with making bread, my wife makes bread at home, so I actually see this in action. You have to add yeast to it, and here's what he's talking about with leaven. It's a way to add yeast and use some of the old dough uh, to add to the new dough to add yeast so that it rises and it becomes a loaf of bread, which is much more palatable than unleavened bread, which is basically like a, you know pita bread or maybe a cracker. Um, and so it doesn't taste as good, unleavened bread. Um, it's plain, but the thing is, it takes longer to make leavened bread. You have to wait for the the yeast to do its work. They're leaving Egypt quickly, so they had to make unleavened bread and not leavened bread. Well, this is what Paul's talking about here. He's relating this story to the Corinthian Christians' pagan past of idolatry and uh, slavery to death and their deliverance from this past by their Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And so now this life is like a perpetual Passover feast of plain, unleavened bread. 
Remember that some of the Israelites after this, while they're in the wilderness, long to go back to Egypt because they're eating the manna even then and they long to go back to the meat pots and the fish and the cucumbers, the life back uh, in Egypt. Well, being a Christian is like being in the wilderness eating manna. It's tempting to look back. Therefore, we should not be like, do you remember Lot's wife? Do you remember Lot's wife? who, when they were departing from Sodom, was, they were warned by the angels not to look back at Sodom, but she didn't really want to leave Sodom. And so she looked back at the thing that she was going to miss dearly, and as a result, this led to her death. Or as Jesus would say it, no one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And the way Paul says it here in this passage is to get rid of the old leaven, You have to remove the leaven from the household in order to make the unleavened bread. He says, get rid of the old leaven of malice and evil of your pagan past and instead be content with the pita bread and manna of sincerity and truth as a follower of Jesus Christ. Finally, verses 9 through 12, um, sort of glossing over this, but it says two important things that I think we ought to pay attention to here. First, apparently, Paul had already written the Corinthians a letter. So 1 Corinthians, as it turns out, may have been 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians may have been 3 Corinthians, but in the canon, we call it 1 Corinthians. There was a previous letter to them where he said similar things about sexual immorality, and the congregation seems to have maybe misinterpreted his instructions uh, to encourage some form of monasticism or, you know, sort of live in a Christian ghetto, sort of cul-de-sac of Christianity, but he, he says he doesn't want them to leave this world. They can't, to, to do that would mean, to, to avoid these things, would, to avoid your neighbors who practice these things would be to leave this world. Um, and neither are they to leave this world nor to judge outsiders, but uh, they're to stay in this world and to pay attention to the church. Now, this is a huge corrective to American Christianity, isn't it? Um, that is often viewed as accusing the outsider pointing the finger at the outsider of accusation when it comes to these topics. But Paul says he's concerned only with the sexual immorality inside the church. That's what we're talking about here. And secondly, Paul expands the list of vices. Don't be distracted by the sexual immorality. That's not the only thing that he's highlighting here in the congregation. There's a much longer list. He also highlights greed, idolatry, Reviling, if you don't know what that word means, it basically means abusive language about other people. For example, gossip, uh, drunkenness, swindling, which is a, a use of deception to gain wealth. And again, the problem is not these vices per se, but the congregation's tolerance of them among them. So he admonishes them to remove these things from among them. Well, here's my application. I ask you to stick with me for several minutes here because I said there's a, there's a positive ending. I'm going I'm to have a positive ending for you, but I, I want to I get through this for a few minutes with you. Here's my application of this passage. I think we ought to do this. We ought to do what Paul's talking about here. We need to practice church discipline because it's biblical. And by the way, church discipline is actually highlighted 
in the 39 articles of religion in the Anglican tradition, there are only 39 articles and one of them is devoted to church discipline. It's also in the 19 of all books of common prayer. It's in the 1979 book of common prayer. It's there buried in a, uh, it's a basically a half a page devoted to, in the instructions about Holy Communion at the very end of the communion section. Despite this, I find that we don't really practice church discipline though. Not just at the Advent, but most churches. And when we do, we do it poorly. We typically confront people when things have gotten too far out of hand. And we do so, therefore, impulsively and immaturely. And sometimes we begin with the public accusation before even going to the person privately. Jesus and Paul give us very clear instructions. Start with a private challenge. If the person refuses to listen to you, then take a small group of people. And only then take it to the larger group. And so I don't have any instructions really other than what Jesus and Paul outline here in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 on how to practice church discipline. But as a parish, we need to figure out how to live together biblically, which crashes against our cultural values, which on the one hand say that we should be able to express our individuality, no holds bar. You know, if someone doesn't like you, they can go away. You do you, right? And on the other hand, there's a massive desire for community. The people want community so badly, but you can't have freedom of individual expression and community without a lack of vulnerability and accountability. Because if you're just expressing yourself all over the place, we're going to alienate each other. In order to live in community, we have to practice what Paul is talking about here. So what I can offer us is this, to practice church discipline avoids, uh, in order to practice church discipline requires avoiding three problems. First is the tolerance that Paul addresses in this chapter. That was the Corinthian problem, and it may be the most likely problem that the Advent would face in this category. We need to ground our good news in an understanding that God is not only the God of love, but also a God of wrath. But God sent his son to be our Passover lamb to deliver us from judgment and death. And now for a little while we are in this life, which is a Passover festival of unleavened bread. We cannot therefore tolerate the old leaven. Otherwise, we're just longing to go back to Egypt. Here's the second problem we need to avoid if we're going to practice church discipline. We have to avoid heavy-handed judgmentalism the kind you probably thought this passage was about when we first read it. Um, What you might also be thinking that I'm saying up here, but I assure you that I'm not. Let me give you an example of why we need to avoid heavy-handed judgmentalism in this category. A friend of mine who had a friend who was a youth minister, ironically at a church called Grace Church, uh, the man was a youth minister, also was attracted to young children. And uh, he felt that he could go to no one in his church to talk to to, uh, anyone about this. Um, This was just boiling under the surface and nobody had any idea about it. But obviously he felt like he couldn't talk to a soul in his church about it. And so what did he do? He took a gun and shot himself in the head and killed himself. This is the kind of thing that legalism breeds when we take it to its logical conclusion. And this is not what Paul is talking about here. We don't want to simply hand people over to Satan, the end. We want to challenge them so they can uh, 
uh, so that we can lovingly care for them, to help them excise the sin for the sake of their eternal souls. So those are the first two problems we need to avoid. The open-ended tolerance on the one hand that says we can do no wrong, and the heavy-handed legalism that views discipline as an end itself and not as a means to a better end. And the solution, the biblical solution, is not a middle ground per se. It's just the right way of doing things. The goal of chapter 5 and Matthew 18 is to follow these steps to avoid the public confrontation, to go privately first, and then uh, a larger group from there. Because we care for the person and not to shame and ridicule them. Well, someone did this for me about three years ago. And at the time, I gotta tell you, I hated him for it. The person, it's no one you know, no one here in Birmingham, it's not Andrew Pearson? It's no no one here. Uh, The person told me something I was doing was misguided according to scripture. And that I was having implications on my ministry. It's nothing terrible. Rather, it's just the mundane leading to basically treading water. As he said to me, you are wasting your time. And although I hated him for it in the moment for a brief, and for a brief period following uh, this encounter, now that the time has passed and God has done the work, I now love this man for what he said to me because it's changed my, it's changed my life. And it's actually having ripple effects on my family and the people around me. Well, here's my ending. And it's both a positive ending and also the, uh, the third problem to avoid when practicing church discipline. We have no business practicing church discipline if we're not able to apply this passage to ourselves first as individuals. We have no business practicing the type of church discipline described here if we as individuals are not applying what Paul is saying to our lives. As Jesus said, we need to remove the logs, the boards of wood out of our eyes first before pointing out the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye. And this isn't a cop-out for church church discipline. It's just good advice and a warning before getting started. So what about you? Just you personally, as an individual. Do you suffer with sexual immorality? Greed, reviling, idolatry, drunkenness, swindling. Purge these things from your life. These are the old leaven of evil and malice. Stop longing for the old leaven of your past. Remember that your Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has delivered you from the bondage of these vices. The gospel is that your identity has been emancipated from the slavery of these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which we'll go into later on, verse 11, Paul, first of all, gives a longer list of vices than these. And after that, he says this. Immediately after giving yet another list of vices like these, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thus you have been delivered from these identities in the name of Jesus Christ crucified. And you are now free to live a life of sincerity and truth. Let's pray. 
Father, for what we've uh, studied here in this passage today and as a church congregation and also as individuals, would you help us to avoid the problems of tolerance on the one hand of that anything goes and a legalism on the other? Um, and would you help us to remove the logs from our own eyes and live in light of our emancipation from the bondage of our own life through your Son, Jesus Christ, crucified, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.